I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Mersham. Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David H. Y. Kellerman, Saadade 13, Kathleen, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Enoch, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallaxies listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be speaking with Simon Matthews, author of Free Your Mind, Giovanni Tinto Brass, Swinging London, and the 60s pop culture scene. If you're unfamiliar with Tinto Brass, he is perhaps most well-known today as a filmmaker who specialized in erotic or softcore films in Europe, as well as the director of Caligula, a star-studded 70s effort starring Malcolm McDowell, and Helen Mirren, among others. The screenplay for Caligula was famously penned by Gore Vidal, but the finished movie did not reflect either Vidal or Brass's vision, as the producer, Bob Guccione of Penthouse, had the film re-edited with hardcore inserts. In many ways, the legacy of Tinto Brass has been forgotten, especially his films made in Swinging London around the time of the mod culture boom. Those films are a time capsule to give insight into the pop culture and counterculture of 1960s London. We'll be talking about that and much, much more with Simon Matthews in the conversation to follow. If you're unfamiliar with the work of Tinto Brass, well, this is one hell of an introduction. So with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Simon Matthews, author of Free Your Mind, 
Giovanni Tinto Brass, Swinging London, and the 60s pop culture scene. Welcome to Parallax. He is a guest that I'm really excited to be speaking with. I've got to know him over the years uh, because he's uh, contributed to a very interesting magazine called Lobster out of uh, the UK, uh, which that, that they're more on the political side of things. But Simon Matthews writes about a lot of different topics and a lot of topics related to pop culture in the 20th century and counterculture and that's what he's on to talk about today. I really enjoy his writing on these matters. And he has a new book out. It is called Free Your Mind. Giovanni Tinto Brass, Swinging London and the 60s Pop Culture Scene. How are you doing, Simon Matthews? I'm absolutely fantastic. Thanks for the introduction. It's great to be here. So, Simon, if you could, I have listeners that are not necessarily as familiar with European cinema. So, who is Tinto Brass? Um, he's an Italian filmmaker of the 1960s and onwards. He's still with us. He's 90, uh, but he's not working anymore in cinema, as far as we know. And through the 60s and 70s, he made quite a lot of interesting pop art films in different genres. He did a spaghetti Western, for instance. Um, he did a couple of Swinging London films. He did some sort of 70s, early 70s, improvised street theatre political type films. And in the mid 70s, he got bogged down a bit with being asked to direct Caligula and then being thrown off the film uh, by Bob Guccione of Penthouse. And his, his career stumbled, and he then spent about 20 years making softcore films, which made him a huge amount of money, and it's probably what most people who've heard of him know him for. But I would say that his earlier films are of considerable interest and ought to see him ranked with much better-known auteurs. Yeah, I think at one point back in the 70s, he was even offered um, a Clockwork Orange, wasn't he? Uh, he was offered it in 1968. I mean, a Clockwork Orange had, like many feature films, had a kind of long genesis before it came to the screen. Um, in this case, um, the author, Anthony Burgess, seems to have sold, in inverted commas, the rights to the film to several different people simultaneously, often in exchange for surprisingly small amounts of money. Um, the people who eventually did produce the film had one contract and various other people had other contracts or quasi-contracts. And one of these other people was Paramount. And uh, Paramount asked Tinto Brass to fly across to Los Angeles in the summer of 1968 to discuss making the film and they got as far as discussing with brass who do you want to be the lead actor because there was a, an argument going on at the time should it be Mick Jagger or should it be David Hemmings both of whom were very hot obviously and Paramount by all accounts weren't that enthusiastic about Mick Jagger and um 
Pinto said to them, look, I don't mind making this film, but I'm obliged to make another film for Dino De Laurentiis, and I really want to do that with Gigi Proietti. So he flew back to London to do that, and he never got back in the frame to do a Clockwork Orange, because by the time it came around again, Stanley Kubrick's project, Napoleon, had fallen to pieces, and Kubrick had an opening to make another film, and he chose to do A Clockwork Orange. Incidentally, the reason why Kubrick's version of Napoleon didn't happen is because it was due to be filmed in Eastern Europe with a colossal cast, stupendous battle scenes at great expense. And it was being prepared and being lined up for production in 1967, 68. And uh, Tinto Brass's producer, Dino De Laurentiis, was planning a film called Waterloo. Who's a legend in his own right. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. With a gigantic cast, stupendous battle scenes being done at huge expense in Eastern Europe. And there's an, an anecdote, which I believe to be true, given to me by a man called Alan Seekers, who was the assistant director on a lot of Tinto's London films. He said, I went to Rome with Tinto, 1968. We had a meeting with Dino De Laurentiis. I stayed outside the room. Tinto went in. He came back out and he said, you never guess what happened in there. And I said, what? And he said, um, Dino De Laurentiis picked up the phone and said to his secretary, get me Brezhnev. And he was put through to Leonid Brezhnev. And Laurentiis explained to him, look, I'm making a film in conjunction with Soviet film companies. I don't want other Eastern Bloc Warsaw-packed countries like like Hungary and Romania helping Stanley Kubrick make Napoleon. And the reason, one of the reasons why Kubrick couldn't get Napoleon off the ground is because the cooperation he had previously with Hungary and Romania vanished. So before we get into the films he made in the sort of days of swinging London, I know you said that he's sort of most known for these. I don't like to use the word softcore. I just sort of use the word um, erotic movies. So stuff yeah. like um, Paprika, uh, yeah. Mon Amour. I mean, I maybe you, you'll disagree with me on this, but I think even those films have some artistic value to them. They, 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 they do. They're, I mean, he's he's a good filmmaker. He's a very good editor. Um, he knows how to set up a scene. He knows how to light a scene. He, ha- he always had a good cameraman. Um, the films are quite funny. I mean, it's sort of sex as comedy a lot of the time. Uh, in the UK, you would say it's kind of like seaside postcard stuff. You know, um, I was going to say he reminds me in some ways of um, Russ Meyer in, in the, you know, there is this sexist comedy aspect. So, and this was an era of filmmakers like that. John Waters as well. Where you get, you get these kind of manic, crazy plots, which you, you work out about 10 minutes into the film. I'm actually not supposed to be taking this seriously. You know, and um, you just get a lot of you get a lot of um, cartoon like violence, a lot of nudity, and it, it's it's basically uh, putting the finger up to establishment values, and and 
that kind of guerrilla filmmaking was very popular in the 70s and 80s, and it seems to have fallen by the wayside somewhat in recent years, probably with the advent of the internet, I think. It's interesting because the film I know him most for actually is, uh, and I think this was the movie that, that sort of put him on the map to do Caligula, which I feel like Caligula ended up being maybe his downfall in some ways was uh, the movie Salon Kitty from 1976. How important was Salon Kitty and, and what's your analysis of that film? It was important. It was a big hit. Prior to that, his films had covered their costs, made a bit of money. He never tended to see the money, which is not uncommon for most people who direct films. Um, Stan on Kitty was a really big box office hit, and it came out at the time of films like The Night Porter, Cabaret, The Damned, where there was this sort of interest in the corruption and kind of um, seediness, if you like, of the Third Reich, with a lot of uh, sexuality in it as well. And um, Salon Kitty is well made, has a good cast. It's got a lot of music in it. In fact, you think it, there's so much music in it, you might even think it is a musical, although it isn't actually a musical, but it, it is a, it's a sort of bit like Cabaret as well in that respect. Um, and it was a period, I suppose, of Nazi chic, as some people might say. It sort of became fashionable to look at the kind of interior design of uh, the Third Reich and things like that. And, yeah, it made him a lot of money. And Bob Guccione saw it and said, ah, aha, this is the man I can have to direct Caligula. I was going to say, too, I'd be remiss uh, if I didn't point out, it had a really great cast, too. You know, he was able to get some good cast together. Helmut Berger was in it. Um, John Ireland even had a role. I always forget that Ireland was in it. But, um, you know, he, he had an eye for uh, some great casts. And, of course, in your book, uh, you have a foreword by the great Franco Nero. So can yeah. you talk about his relationship with actors and how he would direct them? Uh, well, I am reliably informed that Tinto always said, I know I can't direct actors. Uh, but I know that if I shoot 20 to 1... You cut out there for a 24... second. You... Okay. Can you hear me again? You said Tinto would say with regards to knowing actors or working with actors? I know I can't direct actors. But he, he's essentially a film editor. I mean, a lot of directors start out as cinemat cinematographers. Some start out as people who write screenplays, and some start out as film editors. Tinto Brass started out as an editor, and he learned his editing in the 50s at the Cinémathèque Francaise. And he used to say, I know if I can film 20 foot for every foot that I use, I can always make something interesting. So he isn't someone who primarily sets up great acting scenes or great dramatic scenes. But he sets up visually interesting scenes and cuts very effectively. He knows what he's doing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I spoke to Franco Nero and he said, Tinto Brass in the early 1960s was regarded as the next great auteur to emerge. On the basis of a film he made in 1963, uh, Chi Lavora e Perduto, which means all who work are lost. 
Um, it was yeah, it was banned, but it was incredibly well thought of, and everybody knew him and thought, yeah, yeah, he's going to be great. He's going to be the next Antonioni. He's going to be the next Visconti. And I was, you know, I knew him. So of course, when he said, "Would you, you know, could I make a film with you and Vanessa?" which he asked me to do in 1969. Vanessa uh, Redgrave, yeah, Redgrave. We were delighted to do it. We were delighted to do it. Um, and he's politically, he seemed to chime with the spirit of the age then as well. But, you know, he was he was anti-war. He was pro-liberty. Um, he was in favour of tearing down uh, social restraints and social institutions at that point. And um, the film they made was Dropout, which was originally uh, slated to be produced by Carlo Ponti. Carlo Ponti pulled out because it's a brisky point, lost a lot of money, didn't didn't do very well. And so Vanessa Redgrave and Franco Nero and Tinto Brass had to put in money of their own initially to get Dropout made. Could you talk a little bit about the, I don't know if you want to, before we get more into Dropout, do you want to talk about some of the earlier films he did? Like, um, you know, I know he did that that sex comedy, The Flying Saucer he follows that up with Yankee, which is a very interesting uh, entry in the sort of spaghetti Western cycle. Uh, and he also did The Howl, which uh, is a very odd film. Uh, what can we say of those films and the films leading up to Dropout? Well, The Flying Saucer um, was a kind of film to what, 1964, 65 is an Italian comedy uh shot in black and white monica vitis in it um, silvano mangiano is is in it and it it was um i think that was a dino de laurentis production because he did two films early on for dino de laurentis and it made a lot of money in italy it's very popular you know it, it's not i mean it's it's a comedy about a flying saucer i mean it's it's not exactly a kind of um uh, intellectually strenuous plot or anything like that. It's not necessarily a tourist cinema. You know? <laughs> no. <laughs> Yankee, the spaghetti western. Um, That's it... the one with a lot of... Um, I, I remember seeing it. It had a lot of pop art sort of inclinations to it that were unusual for the time. Yeah, I mean, he, he got asked to direct that because... I, I mean, I think he got asked to direct it because everyone who could direct films was being asked to make spaghetti westerns in 1966, you know. Um, but um, he devised a way of portraying the action in the same way that you would have with strip cartoons. If you're reading a newspaper and there's a strip cartoon serial and you have 12 little pictures each week with that episode in it, and the scenes in Yankee are set up like that. For instance, if... Um, if the hero rides into town, you don't see a picture of the hero riding into town. You see a picture of the horse's hooves galloping or something like that. And um, he made quite an avant-garde interpretation of the Spaghetti Western, which the production company immediately re-edited, and he immediately sued them and established his right to have the final cut uh, legally. But... Yankee, yeah, I mean, it got released around Europe, certainly, and probably made money. 
And it, it was on the back of that he got asked to film in London because by that time, everybody was piling into London. Um, on the coattails of Antonioni, he was making blow up. And characteristically, he was filming extremely slowly and with immense solemnity and seriousness. And Brass turned up in London in the early months, 1967, and made a film called Colquare in Gola with heart in mouth, um, with Jean-Louis Trantagnon, who was probably one of the uh, most famous actors in the world at that point. It was in a film called A Man and a Woman, which uh, was a, uh, a colossal international hit. And he was partnered by a Swedish beauty queen called Eva Aulin, who is later world famous for being in Candy. And it's a sort of giallo thriller, murder, mis uh, murder mystery. It just starts in Swinging London, brilliant uh, title scene. Uh, the action is set up again like a pop art film uh, with Guido Kripax, uh doing a lot of illustrations and cartoons for it. He, he had a uh, pop art series called Valentina, the adventures of a sort of woman called Valentina, who quite a lot of the time appears to have very little clothes on. Um, and Tinto just has this, it's a very straightforward murder mystery. And he follows the characters around London, filming out outdoors a lot of the time. Um, and you get to see the granny take a trip boutique you get to see indica gallery which is huge association with the beatles and the london counterculture scene and finally he shoots the last 20 minutes of the film um the climax of the film at uh, a huge festival called um the 14 hour technicolor dream which has got just about every band in britain playing at it and the cast go into the hall, Tinto and the camera go into the hall, and he then films the end of the film with, at some point, members of the audience looking at what's going on, thinking that it's people doing a film, doing a kind of stage performance with a camera as part of the 14-hour Technicolor dream. And um, I'm astonished it's not better known. I mean, I, I'm just astonished. This movie, I'm, by the way, real quick, this is the movie, I think it's also known under the English title Deadly Sweet, right? Yes, that's right. Okay, okay, yeah, but you you said you're astonished. It's more not more more well known. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's more entertaining. It, it's it's more entertaining to watch, say, than Jean Luc Godard's Sympathy for the Devil, um, which I've tried to watch. And I just find find rather tiresome after a while. I mean, you can watch it and just think, oh yeah, let's let's hang around and see what the Rolling Stones are like. Well, let's see what the next bit is. But it's not it, it's kind of like it's a bit of a it's, a it's a bit leaden, I think. Or you look at Antonioni, Blow Up. Um, that's a good film and it stands the test of time, but it's extremely long. Whereas Deadly Sweet is short, entertaining, and there's a lot going on in it if you care to look at it, you know. And 
it survives today as a sort of priceless time capsule. Everyone, everyone talks about uh, a guy called Peter Whitehead, who um, the filmmaker who did Tonight Let's All Make Love in London. Um, he he was actually also there at the 14-hour Technicolor Dream filming. In fact, there seems to have been four different film crews there on the night filming everything. Everyone remembers Peter Whitehead. Nobody remembers Tinto Brass. And I would think it's probably because if you spend the last 20 years of your life making erotic films or softcore films, it's not cool to be given the credit or for people to give the credit to you for actually doing something quite special earlier on. I was going to say, too, with those last two films we talked about, Deadly Sweet and Yankee, I mean, they really are, I would say, a different experience than most other films of that genre. Yeah. So this is a this director who's worked in different genres early on, uh, you know, with Deadly Sweet being more of a yalo or a giallo and a Yankee being a Western. But there, there, there's just something very different about them, very pop art, very anarchic. They're imbued with this spirit that you don't see in other films of the genre. Yeah, I mean, Tinto Brass came from an artistic family. His grandfather, Italico Brass, is, is actually quite a famous Italian painter in the 1890s, 1900s, 1910s, and things like that. And he's very famous in Venice. And Tinto Brass was brought up in a very artistic milieu. And he started out, I mean, early on in his career, before he moved on to features, he made experimental art films, including stuff which was designed to be shown as a wraparound experience. He edited together a huge amount of archive footage that he found at the Cinémathèque Française, set it to a soundtrack and had it projected onto different screens so that you went into this kind of cocoon-like room and had images all the way around you. And he was very familiar with the ethos and ambition of pop art. And I think with Deadly Sweet, certainly, he's trying to make a feature film that will be a kind of integrated piece of pop art in its own right. If you could, do you want to talk a little bit about the films he followed up uh, from there with The Howl and then I think Attraction or um, Nero Sabianco would be very interesting to speak about because that movie is like part collage film and it deals with a lot of topics that were prescient at the time. Yeah, I mean, the first one was actually Attraction, Nero Sabianco. And he started work on that in September 1967 in London. He had a script, which he'd written some years earlier, which is based on James Joyce's Ulysses. And for those of you who don't know or haven't managed to read Ulysses in its 864 pages, Ulysses is a day in the life of one character walking around a city, alternating between the interior conversation in their head and the exterior conversation with other people and he made a version of that in London in 1967 with a Swedish fashion model playing a woman walking around London Anita Sanders and 
in this she's being pursued or she thinks she's being pursued we don't really know whether she's imagining it or not by a black man played by terry carter um black american actor who had been in um the phil silver show as one of sergeant bilko's gang at one point later made some kind of black exploitation films in the mid 70s and again the editing is phenomenal the soundtrack is stupendous he, he wanted to have crockle harem score the entire film with all the action being explicated by the songs there's not very much dialogue um crockle harem went through some lineup changes so he couldn't use them but he managed to use an offshoot group Brockle Harlem called The Freedom, who actually did surprisingly well with it and came up with a pretty good score. I was very privileged to be able to speak to it. I think the last two surviving band members who are no longer with us on that, uh, the drummer Bobby Harrison and the keyboard player Mike Lease. And again, it's a priceless time capsule. Uh, uh, um, it gives us footage of Mark Boyle's light show at the Roundhouse, which, if you know anything about Swinging London, is about as good as you can get. Um, it's the light show the Pink Floyd and the Sock Machine used. Um, and it's, it's, the, it's the performance that Mark Boyle's light show did in a private members-only club, where they, they wired up a couple having sex to some electronic instruments which then set off a kind of display of different images on a screen um so it's a sort of groundbreaking film and it's it is actually done very well and it's it's a it's it's brilliantly edited it's easily the most ambitious film of its time bar none easily the best film of the year he gets to the Cannes film festival May 1968, Dino De Laurentiis is freaking out, saying, this will get banned, we can't show it anywhere, we'll just have to have a private screening for distributors, fine, okay. Cannes Film Festival folds after three days because of the strikes in France and riots. Tinto goes to the United States to talk about Clockwork Orange. Whilst he's in the United States, Dino De Laurentiis gets arrested the tax fraud and flees Italy. Um, the film gets embargoed. It doesn't get shown for uh, at least 18 months when a, uh, an American distributor called Radley Metzger picks it up. Radley Metzger, also known for his sort of uh, yes. involvement in the erotic film world. Yeah, but he, he made yeah. incredibly artistic films. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, and Radley Metzger saw it and said, this is good. This is, this, this is good. And, he bought the rights to it and it, it ran in america for about 10 years it must have made radley metzger an awful lot of money um <laughs> and it was it was last heard of playing in drive-ins in the united states in 1979 and the reviews of it in the american trade press when it was first screened in america in 1969 actually do say it's actually not a bad film this is quite good Subsequent reviews say it actually was also taking quite a lot of money at the box office. So it's it's an immense tragedy that film didn't get screened at Cannes in 1968, had it been so. 
Tinto Brass's career, I think, would have been substantially different. But from there, from there, he goes on to make The Howl. This is the film he turned down The Clockwork Orange to do. And, oh boy, what a mess. Um, it's The problem with trying to judge it today is that we don't actually know what his cut of it would have been. It, it's quite clear from reading very closely the history of its making and its his attempts to get it screened and the it got banned every did he re-edited it four times and each time he came up with a new cut it got banned in Italy. I think what we're left with is a sort of quite messy kind of hit and miss collage, as you say where parts of it are actually very good and parts of it now if you look at them are rather dated very very 1960s at the time it was made the actress who plays the central role in it tina Ormer, was sort of circulating in the same world as the rolling stones during their their satanic majesty period you know um and it was also a period where Lots of people were saying, why don't we have a, a really kind of like in your face, completely out there film where people are having sex on the screen? I mean, Andy Warhol made a film like that. There were Swedish films which purported to be that. These would be really taboo breaking. Let's, let's get it all out there. This is sort of like three or four years before Last Tango in Paris. And I think the original director's cut of the howl was probably like that but it doesn't survive in an attempt because by the autumn of 1969 his career had kind of sort of not quite taken off he did a private screening of the howl for an invited only audience and that was where carlo ponti saw it and said yes i'll i'll give you money to make a film Vanessa Redgrave and Frank Aneris saw it as well and said, yes, yes, um, we'd love to make a film with you. In fact, I, I think Franco said it, uh, Vanessa Redgrave, sorry, said it was one of the best films she'd ever seen. For what that's worth, you know. But um, Jane Fonda also saw it. I mean, he was trying to, he'd been, um, Dina De Laurentiis wanted Tinto Brass to make a sequel to Barbarella at this point to be called Barbarella Goes Down, um, with which was going, going to be about Barbarella going down in a submarine to the bottom of the sea, apparently. And Jane Fonda just said, I'm not doing this. <laughs> I actually want to, I actually want to make serious films. And um, he couldn't get that off the ground either. So he may drop out instead and then had to fund it himself. Before we talk more about dropout and the vacation, uh, for my American listeners, what was so special about the swinging London scene? Because th there's a few movies I've watched that sort of encapsulate the swinging London scene. You know, I'm a horror movie buff. So the example I always give to people is um, the Freddie Francis movie, Girly, 
which uh, I, I I adore that movie. It's a very funny black comedy, but it's sort of about the swinging London scene. And I don't, it's hard to describe to people what was so special about that time period. So maybe you could describe what was in the air. What was the zeitgeist? Ooh, uh, in less than a hundred words. Um, I think it's young. There's always a band in it somewhere. Uh, people are always people wear absolutely the latest clothing or always driving around in the latest car, going to the latest boutique and everything, the language they use, everything is incredibly of the moment and extremely up to date. In it's a very way, hip, it's very youthful. Yeah, yeah in, a, in a way that would be inexplicable now because you would just wouldn't make a film like that. It, in contrast with in contrast with how old-fashioned looking British films had been before, say, 1965, it was extremely vibrant. It tended to be in colour. Um, good example, I mean, a good example of before and after. Uh, Michael Winner, who I think most people would remember from Death Wish and various other aberrations, right? Michael Winner made a film called The Jokers, in 1966. Oliver Reed, right? Yeah, and it's a sort of comedy caper where everyone's careering around London, avoiding the changing of the guard and trying to steal the crown jewels and going to discotheques and meeting girls and dancing and having lots of sort of banter rather than proper dialogue, you know. Three years before that, Michael Winner made a film called West Eleven, which is set in a kind of, it's filmed in black and white, set in a very, very dowdy, run-down part of North London where everyone's renting rooms in crumbling houses. And it's a very downbeat story with lots of sort of kind of jazz on the soundtrack and a sort of very glum, unhappy hero. And um, the contrast between 1963 and 1966 is unbelievable in today's world. I was going to add to that. So was it was it a matter of a, a sort of stark contrast between what came before? It sounds like what came before was the sort of angry young men, John Osborne influenced uh, kitchen sink realism, which would Absolutely. really downbeat. And then you get this whole swinging London scene that is right. like actually, the complete opposite. My 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 next book is actually on the kitchen sink era. He oh, says, really? <laughs> desperately plugging it. I think what you have to remember is this. It's it's actually, I, I have been asked this on several occasions. And you know, having considered it, the Beatles, full stop, the Beatles. When the Beatles filmed A Hard Day's Night, which cost very little to make, it was shot in black and white, didn't have a big cast, quite quite straightforward. It became, I think, something like the fifth biggest box office film in the world in 1964. And it's the same year, I think the Beatles had, what was it? Did they, they had something like 11 singles in the American charts at one point, something like eight of which reached number one and about three best-selling albums in that year as well. At that point, the whole of Hollywood started making films in London. Um, and they 
they they didn't want to make kind of um they 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 didn't want to make 1950s police thrillers they wanted to make films with pop groups in them for a young audience and swinging london as such takes off with the beatles and when the beatles disappear in the end of 1969 it collapses like a souffle pretty much i mean pretty much you know so in terms of dropout and the vacation uh, these are the collaborations with Vanessa Redgrave and Franco Nero working with Tinto Brass. What is it about these films that is, uh, you, you would say, most interesting? Um, I mean, they, they deal with a lot of interesting subject matter. I mean, there's misfits and anarchists. And, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, Dropout was, was made very cheaply because it had to be made very cheaply. It was It was filmed around London mainly, with a few shots done outside London. Um, it's, again, it, heavily improvised. If you're into improv, or you're into, I mean, it's it's a bit like accidental death of an anarchist, if that means anything to you. It's sort of, these sort of things work quite well as a night in the theatre. This kind of mixture of kind of political uh, agitprop action songs uh, with a slightly mad plot, you know, um, trying to get it to work on the screen, not so easy. And Dropout's a bit like that. It's about a woman, middle-class woman, who is kidnapped by a man who's broken out of a lunatic asylum. So... That's Franco Nero kidnapping Vanessa Redgrave. Um, and we're into R.D. Lang territory here, or Timothy Leary territory immediately. You know, are the mad really mad? Are the mad people really the people who've got all the nuclear weapons? Yeah, I, I was going to say it's that old chestnut that Lang had of like, you know, madness is a, a perfectly rational adjustment to a mad world, you know, sure. uh, that type of thing, that territory. So, okay, that. That is, I would say, apparent about a minute into the film that that's the route we're going down. Um, but in that, you know, in 1970, people people were into that kind of stuff. I mean, there's, it's easy to it's easy to criticise it now or belittle it now. But if if you go through the listings for the film festivals for the early 70s. And just go through them film by film by film. Obviously, there's the films you've heard of. There's a ton of stuff you haven't heard of. And you then look at that. A, a lot of people were making films like that. Not, not as in, not in this kind of Keystone Cox way that he makes them, Tinto Brass makes them, but people were making dreadfully serious films on, on exactly that subject. And they were very popular. I mean, they're very popular with student audiences. I mean, most universities had cinema societies or cinema clubs, and they would they'd, they'd be showing a film like this every week. And it's 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 a film like that. Um, yeah, I, I was going to say. I think it was a time where people thought there was this great horizon 
for radically reimagining society and the future and the the potential for for uh, how we conceive of freedom, you know. And it's interesting to me because you're right. A lot of the non-Tinto Brass explorations of those ideas, like, you know, what freedom means in our age and whatnot, can be very solemn, whereas uh, there's a certain joy I find in Tinto Brass that I don't necessarily find elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's there's always, there's always, he always has a couple of interesting scenes in it as well, which you think, ah, oh, yeah, where was this filmed? Um, in Dropout, he goes to a set of artists' studios at St. Catherine's Dock, which were only open a couple of years. They were open 69, 70, 71, and then got closed and the site got redeveloped. This, I mean, St. Catherine's Dock was a defunct dockyard on the River Thames for your American listeners. And there were lots of warehouses, and the owners, before they redeveloped it, let lots of artists move in and use it as studios. And... Tinto Brass descended on it and filmed some of the scenes in it. And it's quite cool. You know, it's not, not in there for very long. And you can see on the wall pictures, and you can see in the background sculptures by the McKink brothers, who were Dutch pop artists. And the same sculptures and the same pictures are used by Stanley Kubrick in A Clockwork Orange. You remember the the rocking sculpture of the male genitalia? Yes. Right. Okay. That's in that's in dropout. It's interesting to think who who got there first. You know, did did Kubrick? I mean, are Kubrick and Tinto Brass turning up within a week of each other <laughs> or something? Because I mean, the place actually wasn't open that long. You know. Um, so that's a curious detail as well. Uh, if you watch Kubrick's trailer for A Clockwork Orange, the original trailer for the film, um, it isn't much like anything Stanley Kubrick ever directed. And it's nothing like his other film trailers. But it is very like a lot of the things Tinto Brass did. And, and Kubrick was known for meticulous research. I think it's possible. I think it's certainly possible that he, when he took on a clockwork orange, he made some inquiries. What's going on with this? What, why, why doesn't anyone else want to direct it? Or what's happened? And they said, well, we've been trying all these other directors and Paramount tried to get Tinto Brass to do it. Oh, Tinto Brass, I've heard of it. Yeah. And he kind of looked at some of Tinto's stuff and then said, oh, yeah, this is quite good. I, I, I could do a film trailer with this, you know, and, you get this kind of jerky music and thousands of images edited together in a way which is instantly memorable. So what I'm curious, why do you think Tinto's films were so different from maybe some of the other films of the zeitgeist? Um, what what do you think drove his approach? Because like you said, some, some of these films are rather solemn, but he takes a, a slightly different approach. I don't think he took himself as seriously as other directors do. He is a serious person. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I think Franco Nero says, you know, he's a serious person, but there's always a hint of irony, you know. <laughs> and he's extremely, I'm told he is extremely well-read. And he comes from a, he, he came from a family where you were always meeting artists and writers. 
Um, but he doesn't take he doesn't take that side of things as as seriously. He's he's not pompous. I mean, um, you know, you look at people like Pasolini or Goddard. I mean, I keep talking about Jean Luc Goddard, but these are people who regard themselves as being very serious. Um, by way of an, an anecdote, Goddard made a second film in Britain in the 60s after Sympathy for the Devil. I think he made a film called English Voices or British Voices, which is like a documentary. Uh, it's an hour-long documentary commissioned by television and um, not shown because they didn't like it. It's got a scene in it where a woman comes slowly downstairs reciting a political tract completely naked. And the way Jean-Luc Goddard did that was he heard there was a feminist writer in London called Sheila Robotham. And he went round to see her and said, I've read some of your writing. I'd love you to be in my next film. And she said, oh, oh, good, you know. And he said, um, what I want you to do is come down uh, come down a spiral staircase reciting this page from the book and we'll film them. But you've got to have no clothes on. And she said, no, I'm not doing that. And it's all the trappings of being highly intellectual. I think if it had been Tinto Brass, it, he would have just said, uh, yeah, this is great. We, why don't you appear in the film and we'll film you speaking this? There'll be loads of people walking around with no clothes on. Do you mind? Or anything like that. It had been, he would have just been completely upfront about it without being in the least bit pretentious. And the person concerned might have actually done it, you know. But with Goddard, it's always this issue of control as well, that he's entitled to do all this because he is a great intellectual. And Tinto Brass wasn't like that. He would quite happily make, I mean, you can't imagine, can you imagine Jean-Luc Goddard making a spaghetti western? Or, or No, I can't. <laughs> um, no. Oh, you know, so he has a sort of, Tinto Brass has a certain kind of nonchalance and he's he's not, in the, in the end, he's not bothered about his own reputation in that way, you know, which is, I think, quite a fetching characteristic. Do you want to talk about that movie we mentioned, The Vacation? Because that, that sort of is, I guess, the follow-up to Dropout, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, Vacation is it's Vanessa Redgrave and Franco Nero again. Uh, that one they made in Italy. They made it in the Venice area. And like Dropout, not dissimilar plot. I mean, Vanessa Redgrave is released. I mean, she's released from the mental hospital at the start of the, or a, she's released from custody of some sort at the start of the film. Yeah, I think she's at a mental asylum. Yeah. yeah, and she has a terrible time being abused, not not sexually abused, but she's kind of like taken advantage of by the family she gets to stay with. And Franco Nero is a sort of man, a kind of almost like a gamekeeper or a kind of a kind of local man who kind of ends up looking after her or something, and. 
the film has got lots has got music and song in it as well but it, it, it's less of a sort of knockabout comedy than Dropout. Less comedic in its approach, I would say. And as a sort of generally more serious tone, I think slightly better edited as well. Um, slightly less scrappy, probably because they had a bit more money to make it. And... It did quite well at a film festival in 1971, won an award as Best Italian Film. And unlike Dropout, which did drop out of circulation very quickly, it got seen a little bit, seen a little bit, and kept his reputation sort of kind of like buoyant. Um, however, he had trouble... He had trouble in the years that followed getting viable projects, which is not unusual for film directors. Um, they kind of like, you know, some people say for every film you end up making, you work on three or four that don't get made. Um, and he was no exception to that. It was a four-year gap between Vacation and Salon Kitty. In fact, between Vacation and a film called The Key, 1983, I think it's 12 years, he made three films, Salon Kitty, Caligula and Action. I think it's really interesting too how his his career trajectory is very unusual because I don't think we mentioned it yet, but he he ended up he started out doing like short films mm. uh, at the behest of Umberto Eco, you know. So I mean, he, he goes from that to like pop art westerns and and a giallo to Salon Kitty, and then the the infamous Caligula to these erotic films and. It, it's funny because I think he plays into a certain image too later on. You know, like he's all, you can always see him with the cigar and it's yeah. like, he's almost playing into like, oh, my critics all say that I'm just obsessed with sex. So, you know, but really it's, he's just a guy that likes cigars. I think that, uh, you know, Franco Nero even says it. He, he's a very playful figure in my view. Yeah, he is. He is. He is. I think he'd have a hard time disliking him. And I think he'd have a good night out with him if I, if I could put it that way. So with regards to Caligula, so we know that Bob Guccione went in and was like, no, we're doing all these hardcore inserts. Uh, Gore Vidal was unhappy with it. I think he was even unhappy with Tinto directing it, or he he said, I mean, in his lifetime, he said some negative things about Tinto Brass. What do you think the legacy of Caligula is? And do you think we'll ever get to see the Tinto Brass version of Caligula? Well, hard to say. The legacy of the film, I think you have to start from by saying, what was it? What was this? What was it about? It's, well, it's it's going to be an epic about a Roman emperor, of which there have been several that have made a huge amount of money. You know, um, I suppose the one most people are familiar with, although it's not actually about a Roman emperor, would be Ben-Hur or something like that. Terrifically successful. I'm talking about the Charlton Heston version here, of course. Uh, don't want to go too far back. But Gore Vidal wrote a screenplay based on Caligula's life. And and I think Tinto altered it a lot. Yeah, he did. He did. But the film which Tinto directed did not have hardcore sex scenes in it. At the launch for my book, a man turned up um, from Oxford who said, we had a kind of question 
answer session afterwards. And he said, well, he said, I was running an Oxford film festival in late 1970s. And we were sent a copy of Caligula to screen at our festival. This would be sort of 1978 or thereabouts. And we had the film arrive. We looked at it in a preview. And then before the actual start date of the festival, we received an instruction, urgent instruction. You must not screen this. You must send the form back. And he said, the film version I saw of Caligula, which would have, it wasn't actually Tinto Brass's cut. It had already been altered a bit by that point, but it would have corresponded more to his version of the film than the subsequent one. He said, the version I saw is actually quite a good film. And it was a very good, accurate, historically accurate account of what the Roman Empire during the time of Caligula would have actually been like. And he said the film version that came out about 18 months later was nothing like it. It had clearly been hacked to pieces and had lots of hardcore sex scenes in, inserted into it. So I think it ought to be possible to reconstruct a version of Caligula that doesn't have penthouse pets in it. And is a bit more like Tinto's, even if it isn't one hundred percent like Tinto Brass. What was what was Tinto's vision for it? My understanding is that it was it, he sort of wanted to deal with this theme of um, you know how power corrupts people. Yeah, and he was gonna it was going to be an element of humor in it, or not maybe not humor satire, perhaps. And Bob Guccione didn't want that. He was under pressure from the people he'd borrowed money from, Guccione, to deliver a film which would make them a stupendous amount of money and would not require very much intellectual effort to understand or sit in front of. And um, Guccione acted on those instructions, got Tinto Brass off the film and re-edited it himself and re-shot key scenes himself. So... I think, I think um, what what Guccione and uh, what Guccione's funders wanted was a hardcore sex film. Maybe it kind of goes back to what people, people. I mean, things like Deep Throat had been out by that time. Deep Throat behind the green door. There was the whole porno chic. Yeah, that's right. And and they made lots of money. These films made whoever made them a lot of money in a way which was quite horrible, quite exploitative. And of course, it's all linked to organised crime. This, by the way, you know, in case we in case we don't understand that. And Tinto Brass wasn't trying to do that. He was trying to make a film which would show ancient Rome for what it was. Which Malcolm McDowell, his star, said, actually, this is what the film was. We did some good stuff on it, and also as a satire on how power corrupts people. And that wasn't what these people wanted. <laughs> it's really unfortunate in a way, too, because uh, this is a film that has a magnificent cast. I mean, you mentioned a uh, Clockwork Orange's Malcolm McDowell, Helen Mirren, Peter O'Toole, John Gilgood. I mean, this this could have been something. And I it's it's interesting because I will say this. I still think people should watch the film for what it could have been. I don't know if you'd agree. Yeah, but... So I mean, I, I think I think. 
as time goes by, isn't that what we all do with these things? You know, I mean, um, it, you kind of you sit yourself down and say, yeah, I'm, I'm writing about this. So let's have a look at this film that this director did. But, you know, let, let's see. Let's see how they do it. Let's see what they're trying to do. Let's see if we can see where the cuts have been and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So if you're interested in if you're interested in cinema or if you're interested in the career of a particular director it, or even a particular star or a particular person who's written a screenplay, then, yeah, I mean, you, you should look at stuff that's not as well regarded or even even is actually quite a failure in order to get a sense of where it went wrong. Earlier, you mentioned Radley Metzger. Um, I've, I've actually, I met Metzger before, um, at a movie convention and, uh, I've always said, I think directors like Metzger and Tinto and Russ Meyer, I actually think they're directors that are worthy of reconsideration. You know, I'm a big fan of Radley's movies, uh, score. I thought the image was very interesting, although that is a, a hardcore movie. Um, do you think that a lot of these directors, because they were dealing with issues related to sex and sexuality, that they've sort of been um, shelved in a way uh, as being, oh, not serious. And do, you, do you think there's an unfairness in that? I think it's unfair, and I think they have been shelved. What I would say about all of them is that these are people who liked film. Um, they actually liked cinema, and they could do it as well. They could make films. I, I was going to say, I think that does get left out, especially with Tinto, because... I mean, everyone will say, you know, Russ Meyer was a, a guy that liked breasts and Tinto liked butts. Uh, and, and they'll focus on the the sort of voyeurist aspect. Yeah. But, you know, what gets overshadowed is you can tell that Tinto really loves cinema. Uh, it's not just all about the sexuality. No, if, yeah. If, if you take out of the equation the kind of physical comedy, if you like, the physical sexuality of it, all of those people, Metzger, John Waters... Uh, Tinto, all of them can actually direct a scene properly. They know how to do it. If, it. if you said to any of them, just do a scene of man driving a car down a road, pulling up, walking into an office block, they'd film it in a slightly quirky way, which held your attention. They would edit it with somewhat greater skill. They'd have a, an interesting colour scene, an interesting colour layer. I mean, I think, I suppose one of the reasons why they've been abandoned is because they're not intellectually respectable. That's that's quite clear with all of them, even though they, they like film and cinema and they can make films and they have made good films. The other thing is, I think, the market for a lot of the films they did make has kind of vanished with the it, with the internet. Once the once you've got the internet, but once you've got hardcore sex available on the internet for free, why would you want to pay to watch or go? Well, why would you go to a cinema to watch a softcore film if you're that type of person or if you're interested in watching sex like that? You know, but I mean, why would you? So. I think the internet swept away a lot of the a, a lot of the reputation they had, really. So I I know we we've talked about the sexuality element, and I think people assume that I'm downplaying that. 
uh, by saying, well, there's other elements to his work, but how much does sexuality play in his work? And, and what can we say about that aspect of Tintu's work? Because I, I think it's done in a very, I, I think he's very interested in the idea of sexual freedom and things of that nature. And I think there's a value in that. Yeah, he is. I mean, he is. In, I mean, sexual freedom is one of the one of the big big issues of the sixties, and to a certain extent, seventies as well. And it's a big theme, and it's it's an increasing theme in his films. I would say. I mean, Nero Subianco is shot from a woman's point of view, about a woman who is in a marriage that she finds a bit conventional and boring, and wants to get out of it for a day and see what else there is in the world. And obviously the howl takes that a step further. And both dropout and vacation are about a woman who's, I mean, both have a central character that's female. And it's both about them being in some way fulfilled and escaping the constraints of society. Um, I don't, I mean, I think if you said, you know, well, up until, up until the, I think certainly up until about the key 1983 points that Tinto Brass is making about sexuality are quite serious. Once he decides this is too much of a struggle trying to make mainstream films, I'll just make films that make me money. The points he's making about sexuality are, it's just a sort of like a, um, like a sort of cartoon really. You know, um, it, it's not, I don't think you could say that his later films are making serious points about it. He's just sort of making films that make money and entertain him and entertain the people who want to kind of watch them, you know. I think it shows that he he kind of loved cinema enough where he realized, uh, you know, if I'm going to keep doing this and be able to sustain myself, I'm going to have to. Do it this way rather than maybe the way I've wanted to um, in the past. I also think they're extremely, I mean, we're talking about this as if it's it's in some way significant. By today's standards, the sexual sexuality portrays is extremely mild compared to what you can get online. You know, it's, it's that, not. That, you know, that's why I actually... That's why I will still watch his movies. I really have a very little interest in the things that people will find online today involving sexuality. You know, there's something there's something I find more endearing uh, with the way that he deals with sex and sexuality. Yes, I think so. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very um, earthy. And that is actually a tradition of Venetian theatre. I was going to say your whole first chapter is kind of devoted to his Venetian background, right? Yes, yeah. I think you I think you need to understand where the man is from and what the traditions are in that part of the world. And, you know, what the traditions are locally and I mean Venice well, I mean Venice of course is not um was originally an independent city state. And it's it's where carnival started. The whole the whole basis of having a carnival where people wear masks and disguise themselves for a day. And by virtue of doing that, you can do all sorts of things that you can't do the rest of the year. You know, that starts in Venice. It, it ends up then being transported to Latin America, New Orleans and other places. But it's a it's originally a Venetian concept, which which in turn goes back to 
the kind of comedy of the sort of kind of Roman times, where there's you know lots of lots of very kind of lots of jokes about sexuality and bodily functions and everything else going on, and lots of debunking of authority as well. So I had two more questions. Uh... The first was, in terms of the way he deals with sexuality, I think what's also interesting is that with a movie like uh, Nero Sapianco, you do mention that he looks at the female perspective. You know, it's told from a woman's perspective. I mean, granted, it's it's being directed by uh, a, a man, but to me, there's something uh, that I appreciate about that more than films that come later that deal with sex in a very cheap way that really is just about, you know, the, the sort of mill gaze at work. I, I do think there is um, in his earlier works, a sort of focus on the, the female perspective at times. Mm. Yeah, I think there is, there is definitely. We didn't mention Jim Morrison, by the way. I forgot. Oh yeah. You know what? We should talk about that because yeah. So what what was the deal with that? Because I, I know Morrison did that, that experimental film highway in American pastoral. Yeah. What happened with Morrison? What happened indeed? I was talking to the man who did the score for Dropout, and he said, we were in the dubbing studios in Rome doing the soundtrack, and there were several occasions when film producers came in to talk to Tinto, and they were talking to him and saying, we're going to set, we are setting up a film with Jim Morrison. We'd like you to direct it, and it's going to be called, or it's going to be like, 40 Days in the Wilderness. And I checked with him. I went back to him. Are you sure about this? Are you sure they were going to make a film with Tinto Brass and Jim Morrison? And he said, yeah, absolutely. I remember it. I can't, you know. So I went and um, looked at Morrison's later career, and that is that's hard going. I mean, because he was a massive alcoholic, it, it's not an easy read tracing his last couple of years. And he he was there were various scripts and various other people trying to put films together in which Morrison would have played a character who goes into the wilderness to find himself, and. The film was being at one point talked about being made in Europe, possibly London at one scene uh, time. And it looks as if this was one of these kind of nebulous projects that was floating around in the background. Um, Morrison never sobered up enough to actually the thing to be put into production. And he died in Paris in 1971, as we know. But one of the people who was preparing the script for this film later worked on Last Tango in Paris and co-wrote the script for that, which kind of has a not dissimilar feel to it. And it's, again, it's one of the ironies of Tinto Brass's life that everyone proclaims Last Tango in Paris is the great breakthrough in sexual taboos being busted. Again, he misses it. He doesn't quite get his ducks in a row, as people say over here. And um, that opportunity passes him by. 
I wanted to ask you about, I know we mentioned his politics in passing, but he had some really radical politics and backed some different radical political parties, I think, over the years. Um, he had some anti-NATO views during the Cold War. Could you speak to that? Yeah, he was originally a member of, well, he was originally, he looked at the Communist Party originally. His father actually was a fascist. His oh, father, really? Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, his grandfather, famous artist, his father was one of the generation who went through the First World War and thought Italy should have got more out of it and later became a major supporter of Benito Mussolini. Brass didn't get on with his father, had very different views. Um, and Tinto himself started out, I mean, he was 40, he was uh, 12 years old when Venice was liberated in 1945, and he saw the partisans marching into Venice. He was 14 years old when the communists almost won the election in Italy in 1947. And initially he was drawn to communism. He had no time for Italian politics. Well, you know, why would you during the Cold War? Um, the Christian Democrats stayed in power almost permanently because uh, the United States wanted them to stay in power almost permanently. And they were under instructions never to let the communists or socialists into power with them. So Tinto became this kind of person with anarchist views and a kind of great disregard for how Italian politics were, um, which I guess later, beca later became similar to his general libertarian views. He, I mean, he was, he was in the Radical Party. At one, well, not, I don't know if he was actually a member, but he was clearly identified as a supporter of the Radical Party who at one point were kind of flickering around on the Italian scene in the 90s with La Cicciolina, um, who uh, is a sort of actress in, in kind of porn films and a deputy in the Italian parliament at the same time, who interestingly has quite a similar background to Tinto Brass, uh, family background, really. When you say libertarian, you don't. I, I'm assuming you don't mean libertarian in like the uh, American sense of the word. No, he's not in favor of unre. You know, everyone having a gun, or anything like that. Um, or he's not anti-abortion or anything like that. I mean, he's he's anti. He was anti-Catholic Church, and the church, the Catholic Church, tend to be people that he satirizes a lot in his films. Uh, by libertarian, um, we mean liberal and wanting less con less constraints and less censorship than has previously been the case. It's very hard, to, very hard to actually define it in in a kind of short term way. But that's... yeah, yeah, I I just meant like I think a lot of people in America think that libertarian just means. Uh... Just no government regulations and laissez-faire economics, but I, I think he's more concerned almost with, with like a um, civil or social libertarianism. It sounds like, yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. But um, you should be allowed to get divorced. You know, you should be allowed to have an abortion if you're a woman. Um, contracept. You should be allowed to use contraception. You shouldn't. You shouldn't have to go. 
you know, you shouldn't have the Catholic Church in this very strong position in society telling people what they can and can't do. And that libertarian in a political sense, that having too much structure in politics and having is not necessarily a good thing. People should be allowed to vote in a way which doesn't necessarily follow party political lines, which of course doesn't always work. It's not not necessarily a practical way to run a country. Very last thing here. What role this may sound like a strange question, but what role did something like Channel Four and shows like Euro Trash or outside of Tinto Brass, uh, you know, a show like the incredibly strange film show hosted by Jonathan Ro- Jonathan Ross? What role did shows like that play in maybe reviving interest in a filmmaker like Tinto or a filmmaker like John Waters or Russ Meyer? How important do you think that those uh, shows were in maybe reviving that interest? Or even like figures like more obscure, like Jess Franco, you know, I mean, I, I feel like these shows really helped uh, shine a light on, you know, people we would have otherwise forgotten, filmmakers we would have forgotten. Well, Russ Meyer and John Waters, well, Russ Meyer and John Waters have both had retrospectives at the British Film Institute. Tinto Brass hasn't, even now. A lot of these people, I mean, I, I think... A lot of Tinto's stuff did not appear in the UK until it was released on DVD. And that would have been 2009 or anything like that, which is quite late. I mean, they, his, his best, his best films, you know, Yankee, Deadly Sweet, Nery Sabianco got released in American cinemas, I think. I don't think they made it to Britain. So that kind of period that you're talking about, which is what, 1990s, for about 15 years or so, yes, a lot of stuff did a, did get rediscovered then. But somehow he managed to slip through the, he managed to slip through the cracks even then. Um, I mean, Jess Franco, I would say, is probably slightly better now. Really? That's yeah. interesting, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's odd that it's, it's odd that someone who made Deadly Sweet and Nero Sibianco, which are the, the the two best swinging London films, isn't better known. And I, I think there's all sorts of there's all sorts of mundane issues to that. I mean, one of them is that you, I don't think the distribution rights have. Uh, exist for those films in the UK. So you can't, sh- I mean, they've never been screened on TV here. I was going to say, since you mentioned Michael Winner before, do you see any parallels with, this is going to sound strange, but I, I feel like there's a parallel with Tinto Brass in that in some ways, someone like Winner is more remembered for his sort of political views um, and other things, uh, and movies like Death Wish, and everyone forgets about those swinging London movies that he made. Uh, and it's sort of similar with Tinto, where I think uh, a director like Tinto, a lot of his work gets forgotten. And if people know about him at all, it's like you said, those erotic films uh, that he made after you know Caligula and that period. Uh, do you think that's the case? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I mean, Michael Wynn is an interesting case as well because um, I, I have to admit, I, I, I'm I'm loath to tell people this because they just roll their eyes. But I have, I like a few of Michael Winner's films actually as well. I mean, um, I saw. A, I mean, I remember he made a film called Chato's Land. Yes, with, with uh, Bronson. Yeah, yeah, with Jack Palance and that as well. Yes, uh, yes, yeah, yeah. Watching that thing, he's actually quite good. You know. He did a film with Marlon Brando, didn't he? The Night Comes. I mean, again, he's somebody, he's someone who likes cinema. He's a bit like Ken Russell. You know, these are guys who like cinema and film, and they can make films. They know how to edit, and they're just naturally enthusiastic about doing it. And they don't have... They're 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 cinephiles. You know? Yeah, they don't have colossal kind of pretensions about themselves necessarily you know, they're but, not like Godard <laughs> well or, or lots of other auteurs who kind of like um always win awards or get nominated for Oscars and things like that you know um winners like that yeah I mean um and he's he's I mean you wouldn't want to watch everything he's made but a certain selection of his films are actually very good. Yeah, he's one of those when I when I tell people that I like a lot of his films, they're like, "What?" Especially my British listeners, they're what? Like, well, you haven't seen everything. But um, in closing, do you think that you know Tinto's ninety years ninety years old now? Um, do you think when he passes on, there may be a reevaluation of his work? I would hope so. I would hope so. I mean. I mean, I'm, I'm doing, I did my best to give him a fair write-up in the book, you know, and I hope it piques a few people's interests and leads to people taking a closer look and maybe elevating him slightly in the pantheon, although, you know, the 1960s are receding, the 1972 now. Um, but I think, yeah. Let's let's hope that as time goes by, he's got people have a slightly higher regard for him. Interestingly, that the sales of the book, I'm told, are quite good in Europe. Not so good in the UK, but actually quite quite decent in Europe. Which would again, you know, probably be because his films didn't get released in the UK. Um, you wouldn't have seen them on, in a late night cinema in London in the 70s or 80s for instance, because there were no prints in the UK. Yeah, I was going to say, it does seem like there's interest with regards to Tinto Brass's work in, in Europe. Uh, there's that one uh, German filmmaker, I don't know if you know him, Alexander, I think it's Tushinsky, uh, that, you know, is kind of like a scholar of Tinto Brass at this point. We've, we've exchanged emails, and I've, I've kept him up to speed with the book in um, advised him, you know, told him about the publication. I hope he's got a copy and I hope he likes it. I thought his essay on Nero Sibianco was excellent. Well, I, I, I'm glad for guys like you and him uh, keeping it alive, but you were going to say something else. I'm sorry. I just, he gets it. I used to work in a, disclaimer here, I used to work in a film library in the 1970s, documentary film library where there were thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of surplus cans of documentary film lying around. And I kind of used to, I did actually used to spend some afternoons when there wasn't very much work to do, 
editing together little bits of film and seeing what they were like. So I and that's how that's how Tinto Brass learned to edit film at the Cinematheque Francais. So I can see I can see how it's done. And once you've done a little bit of that, but when you see one of his feature films, you say, Wow, that's good. Whoa, that's good. You know. Um and it ought he you know, he ought to be better recognized. No, I agree 110%. I, I mean, I'm sure Quentin Tarantino has stole a thing or two from him at some point. <laughs> I'm happy to give Mr. Tarantino advice whenever he needs it. <laughs> well, I want to thank you again, Simon Matthews, for coming on Parallax Views. I really want people to check out this book because I love cinema and I really think Tinto Brass deserves to be more recognized. The book, again, is Free Your Mind, Giovanni Tinto Brass, Swinging London and the 60s pop culture scene. I want to thank you again. How can my listeners uh, keep up with your work? Uh, I don't I don't think you have any presence on social media, but they can get the book at any of their favorite booksellers, right? I haven't got a big enough ego to have a presence on social media. <laughs> In any way, since Mr. Musk is now dismantling social media, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what, what the value is unless I have my own website. Yeah, I mean, the book can be just just Google Simon Matthews plus Old Castle Books, and they will be very happy to send you a copy or more than one copy if you wish to buy more than one. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Simon Matthews, author of Free Your Mind, Giovanni Tinto Brass, Swinging London and the 60s pop culture scene. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, I cannot stress enough that I need your help to keep this show going at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Kick me some cash if you can, because you, the listener, are what keeps this show going. I only have one advertiser, the mighty Mike Swanson, of Wall Street Window, but otherwise, this show is entirely listener-supported. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say "Don't do it." That's to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. 
I'm not afraid.